0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. With recipes for broiled squirrel, baked possum, and myriad uses for Cool Whip, Ernest Matthew Meichler's White Trash Cooking was released in 1986 to mixed reviews. Was it a sociological study, a campy gimmick, or just another elitist dig at poor Southerners? Michael Adno's profile of the writer and photographer known as Ernie Meichler portrays a man who took pride in his disappearing Southern heritage and in the food served by his Florida relatives and neighbors the very people he felt rejected by as a gay man. Michael is on the line from Florida to talk about the complex, talented man he discovered while writing this year's James Beard award-winning profile, The Short and Brilliant Life of Ernest Matthew Meichler, and it was published by The Bitter Southerner. Hello, Michael. Hey, Virginia. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. How are
0: you? Well, thank you for joining us from Florida, where Ernie Meichler grew up, but, but it was a different Florida then. Where and what was the Florida of Ernie Meichler's youth?
1: Well, he grew up in a place called Palm Valley, which is just south of uh, Jacksonville Beach. It's kind of sandwiched between what is the Intracoastal Waterway and the Atlantic. And when he grew up there, it was, as he described it, just a you know palm cabbage swamp, which it really was. Today, it's kind of hemmed in by... A number of preserves. But otherwise, if you were to drive through it, I don't think you'd recognize it because it would just be golf courses and cookie cutter neighborhoods. Um, they call it Pontevedra Beach now.
0: Well, he's a man of many talents. He played country music with Helen petey Pickett, got an MFA at a predominantly women's college in California. What kinds of impressions did you get of him from the people who knew him growing up?
1: You know, I think the the one thing that always stuck with me is you know, Petey Pickett, who was one of his best friends and grew up with him there in Palm Valley, she always told me that Ernie didn't wait until Friday to have a good time. So, you know, whether you were, you know, whether you were with him on Tuesday afternoon or on Saturday night, I mean, he was just always getting into something and, you know, he was just the life of the party. I mean, she told me he glowed in the dark and anytime he came into a room, people's heads would turn. And that charisma, I think, You see it in all his work, his photographs, his writing, his storytelling, his music. And so I think just charisma was the thing that he brought everywhere with him.
0: Well, he was a photographer. He was a writer. He he said of himself, I'm good at writing cracker. And he yeah. he got this idea for the White Trash Cookbook with a group of friends, and he explains in the introduction of the cookbook, White Trash was something to be proud of, and he distinguishes it, the uppercase and lowercase white trash. What's the difference there?
1: Well, as he wrote, he said manners and pride separate the two, and I think... You know, it didn't just pertain to poor white people who grew up in the South, but to anyone who came from a place that was made to feel like they didn't belong. You know, whether that was you lived in Manhattan and you were from New Jersey, or you were from South Florida and people told you you weren't Southern, or, you know, you grew up in North Louisiana and didn't fit in, in, you know, New Orleans. Um, And I think he he really sung that praise, and for him— he was a gay man from the South and from a particularly homophobic part of the South. I mean, his, his brothers at one point, you know, wouldn't speak to him when they found out he was gay. And I think that, you know, when, when he started working on this cookbook, whether or not he was aware of it, it was this kind of significant move to just say that, you know, no matter where you're from and what you are, you should be proud of it. And for him, it was, you know, being white trash and being from this place that, a lot of people made fun of, whether he was in San Francisco or Key West, New York, or even New Orleans.
0: Well, when he was going to school, he got his MFA, as I said, in uh, what, Mill College? I can't remember the name Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, Yeah, Mill College. In in Oakland. But, you know, dressed up flamboyantly in this crazy kind of outfit with wings for his graduation. Um, a, A little bit of a performer, certainly. Yeah. But was there, I don't know, was there the subversive in him? Was he writing this white trash cookbook uh, as a way of poking fun at his heritage? What's your sense of that?
1: I think so. I mean, I think you see, like he did an interview with a close friend of his just a month before he died, which was in 1988. And um you know, they talk a lot about these, these tropes of the South um, and of pride and heritage and all these things. And the person he did the interview with was from a, a similar area. And, you know, they, they poked fun at a lot of it. And I think that if you look at White Trash Cooking as a serious, you know, kind of document or sociological or folklore, you know, just an anthology, I think what you see is that humor is this really, really compelling way to disarm a reader and make them think more seriously about something that if you were to do it in an academic way, I mean, you would never be able to get them to sit down at the table. So I think that anyone comes to this book and, you know, a smile stretches across their face and they can consider some of the things in there that they otherwise wouldn't. Because, you know, before the book was published, I mean, people were – incredibly offended by the idea of it. I mean, that there would be a book called White Trash Cooking, and that you would even use the term white trash, or, you know, as he said, he was good at writing Cracker. I mean, to use any of those things, I mean, they were just, they were just abhorrent. I mean, people were not interested in talking about those things. Whereas now, you know, more than 30 years later, it seems like we're a little bit more comfortable talking about those things. And I think in part, thanks to Ernie Michael.
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, we've heard from people who say that, well, white trash is the last kind of socioeconomic group that you can still make fun of, you know, that we're still at the bottom of the pool in that way. It, it, so, the, you know, the people are punching down on some level. Do you think that's true?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that white trash in itself, when it's used in a derogatory term, is is not just offensive because it's this epithet, but I think it's offensive because of what it, like, I want to say tacitly implies, but it explicitly implies that, like, you know, if you're not white, then you are what follows that word. And so I I think it's a little strange when we talk about it today because I'm not sure what people mean when they mean white trash. I think they mean rednecks, poor people, people from the South, maybe more generally people who are uneducated. And uh, I think that we're seeing you know, a little bit, I wouldn't call it a pushback, but there's this kind of, you know, this political atmosphere. And I think that a lot of people think of the other as maybe white trash or people who elected someone they didn't agree with, and they see that as white trash. And I think it's just easy to generalize and see this, this whole group of people that you don't otherwise know as just simply white trash. I mean, it's just a really easy way to, to diminish them.
0: How was the book White Trash Cooking released in the Reagan 1980s? How was it received?
1: Well, um, you know, when they were when Ernie was trying to sell the book, I mean, you know, publishers wouldn't touch it. Um, the New Yorker after it was published, they rejected an advertisement for it. They sent the money back. Um They said but, it would
0: offend their readers.
1: Yes, yes. And Otherwise, I mean, it was deemed one of the most interesting cookbooks of the spring 1986 cookbook season. Um, Harper Lee loved the book. There were, I mean, glowing commendations from tons of people. And today when you ask, I mean, if you ask William Eggleston's son, Winston, the book is in the house. If you ask, you know, uh, famous Southerners, if you ask people in New York City, culinary greats, um, great writers, you know they know this book. um and editors and, and and very you know famous people know this book. I mean, it's made its way around. Um, and I think that stands testament to how endearing and important the book was. And I mean, it's it hasn't lost its, i think importance or its significance. It, it seems to really almost stand up just as much as it did today as it did like you said under Reagan in 1986, but it it had mixed reviews. I mean, some people loved it, and of course, some people absolutely hated it, but it it also spanned the North to the South, the rich to the poor, and it was a really interesting cross-section of the South.
0: So let's hear this. We spoke to John T. Edge about this book previously on On Second Thought. Here he is referring to Harper Lee's quote about white trash cooking. I've never seen a sociological document of such beauty. We've long needed something other than the ballot box to remind us of their presence, meaning white trash folk. White trash cooking is a beautiful testament to a stubborn people of proud and poignant heritage. I'm speaking with the writer-photographer and now James Beard Award winner Michael Adner. and we talk, We're talking about Ernest Matthew Meichler's White Trash Cooking. Michael wrote an award-winning uh, profile of uh, of Meichler, Ernest Michael, Matthew Meichler, for The Bitter Southerner. So let's talk about that a little bit. You mentioned William Eggleston, and for people who may not know him, he was a photographer who really sort of picked up the work of documenting the South. You also compare Michler to Zora Neale Hurston, who was doing an anthropological study of the the South and really picked up and documented a lot of the vernacular. Do you think that that was what Michler was actually trying to do?
1: I think so. I mean, I think that you know, when I spent all this time with his papers, which is really impressive, because they're they're just as he left them when he died. Um, you see all the other projects that he was working on, the photographs that he was making, the stories he was you know trying to turn into fiction, and I think that from what I can tell, from the people that he knew and spoke to, he knew of those those people's work and, you know, even reference them, and you see it very clearly in his work. I mean, the dialect that he refers to as writing Cracker, I mean, is similar to Zorniel Hurston writing the dialect of the places that she grew up and knew in the South, and specifically in Florida. And with Eggleston, I mean, you just, when you look at compositions of Ernie Meichler's photographs, I mean, it's unmistakable that he was looking at Eggleston and Christenberry, uh, Walker Evans... Uh, Clarence John Laughlin, a lot of these kind of Southern photographers that at the time were heralded. So, I think he was trying to follow in the footsteps of those authors and and artists.
0: Well, this was a guy who was kind of held up as a buffoon. I mean, he was on David Letterman cooked chicken feet and rice, you know, Mm -hmm. used as the butt of a, a joke, certainly. Do you think he was kind of, I don't know, playing that role on some kind of level to mess with people?
1: You know, I don't think he was. I think that he i think he played along. i mean, I think he was real sweet, but I think you saw after after the book had come out and he'd done some of those t v spots and radio interviews i mean i think he he did feel offended uh he he felt hurt that there was still this idea that southerners were uneducated and and you know unthoughtful um which which really bothered him because he knew a different south, and I think that while he was very funny, and there was always an air of levity everywhere he went, I think that it did offend him when he was on a TV show like that and made fun of, or when when people would receive his work in a way that he didn't see as, as meaningful, ultimately.
0: Well, and after the success of White Trash Cooking, he did come out and write another book that was published shortly before he died. What, what Was he continuing that work? What was he doing with this next book?
1: I think the next book was more specific. I mean, it really, it was this collection of recipes that pertained really just to where he was from. And where he's from is right at the north end of St. John's County, which is this really interesting study in contrast to Florida because each mile that you drive, the area of it changes very much. And in it, what he did is he, instead of separating the book between meats and vegetables or desserts, they were tied to different events that he grew up with which for example could be baptisms or you know when they would when they would clean a hog or funerals wakes um quilting parties and then each section he wrote kind of a short story that would give you the atmosphere of the section and uh, in that you start to see where he was headed with his fiction writing um and these characters that he painted which when you study his life, you see that these are characters that he knew, I mean, based upon his mother or close friends or conversations that he overheard the same way that many other writers have. But this book, I just felt, was more mature. I mean, it seemed like it was more aware of itself. It, uh, there were more photographs in it. It, it just really, you know, it, it had more of a sense of how you could use that, that model and anthology to communicate something. And it was published a day before, well, the day that it hit bookshelves, he he died. Mm -hmm. Um, So as soon as people were able to pick it up, he he had died. But he did see advanced copies of it, and he did sign them. Um, When he was still in the hospital, he signed a copy for one of his closest friends, Calvin Yeomans, um, and he signed it because Bernie Michler did die of AIDS, and Mm -hmm. just before he died, he wrote to Calvin Yeomans. We'll figure it out someday.
0: Yeah. So this is a man who, like many gay men in the 70s, 80s, and before that, left his hometown in Florida. And people have left hometowns all over the United States, many, many, many in the South. You say that he is a portal to the South. His work is. Is there any revelation there of who he was as a gay man in the South?
1: I think think that... The South, for a lot of us who have done that, and I'm someone who has done that, who has left and returned and, and laid my claim to it. I'm also a first-generation American, so it was even harder, whereas he came from this long line of people who had who had settled here and even were pioneers here. But for for him, I think the South made him more aware of who he wanted to be and made him feel more himself. I mean, he... He felt like he belonged here, and I think that all of his work was about really staking a claim to that and carving out that real estate to say, you know, whether or not you accept me, I belong here. This is my place, and I care about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and living in San Francisco and in New Orleans and visiting Fire Island and London and Mexico and all the places, including Key West. Um, you know, I think after a while, he just he wanted to be home in, in the landscape that he knew and um as he said, you know, it was gentle on his head is the way that he put it.
0: Well, Michael Adna, thank you for giving us his portrait of Ernie Meichler. Appreciate your
1: time. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia.
0: That is the writer and photographer and now James Beard Award winner, Michael Adnow. You can find a link to read his profile of Ernie Meichler at gpbnews.org. Some feedback on last week, we spoke with Macon and Atlanta leaders in response to the claim that the United States is full. On Facebook, David Cartwright said, ''If we were full, I wouldn't have got out of a martyr train at Peachtree Center around 1 p.m. on Easter Sunday to find the actual Peachtree Center empty.'' About 90% of its restaurants, including the Big Chain Coffee Shop, closed. In New York, Chicago, D.C., San Francisco, or any other similarly-sized city to Atlanta, anywhere else in the world, it would have been bustling and packed with people. You can chime in with your own part of the conversation on anything that we do here. Our Facebook group is GBB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up, we're going to learn about the origins of the mint julep. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought.